we've been working on a red letter study. And we're still working on a red letter study. There's a lot of red letters. The red letters are the actual quoted words of Jesus in the New Testament Gospels and uh, sometimes printed in red ink in some editions of the Bible. So Jesus' words, trying to understand them from a first century Hebrew point of view so that we can really get into the sandals of the first followers. The closest we're going to know to what Jesus intended to mean is if we can recreate what his words would have meant to his first followers in that time, in that place, in that culture and worldview. And so that's the way that we're approaching this. We're also harmonizing the four Gospels to get as much of the information that's spread across the four uh, into a single narrative. So we've been doing that. Last week, we, we just started, um, we're in first third of Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So this is where we've, we've come to. And... Um, Last week, we talked about the micro and the macro, which are foundational concepts, just, just for life. To understand the context change between macro and micro is incredibly important, but it's, it's also front and center to what Jesus is trying to teach us in Matthew 5 as he redefines law, redefines law on his terms so that we can understand what it really means to fulfill the law. So micro and macro, macro being large groups, but really it doesn't have to be a large group, just more than two. More than two is macro, because as soon as you add a third person, suddenly fairness, equality, justice all comes into play. And that's the highest good in the macro to the group is justice. Love looks like justice when it is rained down on a group of people, as opposed to the micro, one-on-one relationships, where justice is not enough. Now the highest good in a micro relationship is mercy and compassion, and of course, love. So love looks like mercy and compassion in individual relationships, looks like justice to the group. We were talking through this last week and trying to get a good understanding of how this code shifting makes such a difference in everything that we do in life, from politics to any kind of group uh, dynamics, micro and macro is going to be really important to keep in mind as we move between these two, justice and mercy, macro, micro. Now, in Matthew 5, where we've been going, there is this beautiful construction that Matthew puts together here as he compiled all the teachings of Jesus into these three packed chapters. And just taking a look, let's go to... um, Matthew 5, starting at verse 17, and then we actually read this and Matthew 5.20 last week, but I I just want to get a running start at this, so we've got the context for it. So Jesus has just come out. He starts with the Beatitudes, which is a picture of the finished product of what a kingdom person looks like, all the attributes, all the different facets. Then he moves into salt and light, which is the effect that a kingdom person is going to have on the community and the people around him or her salt and light, great metaphors that he uses there. And then he goes right here into verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, these are two of the major sections of the Hebrew Bible, what they call the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. It's divided into three sections. The law is the Torah, the first five books. The prophets, the Nevi'im, is the All of the prophets that we know, from Isaiah to Jeremiah down to the minor prophets, Micah, and so on and so forth, all of that together was uh, was the prophet section, which amplified 
the, the law, the Torah. And then the third was the Ketuvim, or the writings. This is all the wisdom literature. This is Ecclesiastes and, and uh, Proverbs and Psalms and so on and so forth. So those were the three major sections, the way the Hebrews divided their Tanakh, their Mikra, their, their book. And so when he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, he's basically saying, don't think that I came to abolish our tradition as a people, because that comprised the allness of their tradition as a theocracy, as a people of faith. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I know that this sounds really legalistic to our ears the way it's stated here, but what Jesus is doing is exactly the opposite. It will be the opposite as he continues to develop all of this. But basically what he's saying right here is that the law is not abolished. The law is not irrelevant. The law is not unnecessary as long as people are still living between heaven and earth. Now, that's the way the Jews looked at human beings, living between heaven and earth, between the oneness and connection of heaven, God's domain, and between the individual form and function of earth, the way that we perceive life on a daily basis. So as long as we're in between that, as long as we're struggling in that betweenness, the law is necessary. But the word law, the word Torah there, doesn't mean a law the way we think of a law as an absolute command. It's an instruction or a guidance. It is pointing the way. It isn't mandating the way. Yeah, well, they had, their law was a civil code as well, and so yes, it did mandate their civil life. But the actual spiritual understanding of Torah is that it is a guide. It's instruction. And it's absolutely necessary until heaven and earth pass away. And the word there in Aramaic is abar. Abar means to cross a limit or a boundary, to cross a threshold. That's the sense of passing away. Not to end, but to actually cross boundaries and merge into each other. So basically what Jesus is saying, the law is necessary as long as we're living between heaven and earth. But in the heart of each person, when they learn to merge the two, when they can bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, that is, find in their individual form and function, the experience of daily life, the oneness and the connection that undergirds all that, when that becomes a second sight, when that becomes the actual motivating force in our lives, then we don't need the law anymore. One scholar called it the disappearing law. I love that. The law disappears the more that we become what Jesus is calling kingdom. What Deuteronomy 6 calls writing the law on our hearts to assimilate it, to become it, to live it, to have our highest values, our highest and, and deepest desire and pleasure and purpose be for the other in a way that the law is obviated. We don't need it anymore. It's unnecessary in our lives. It has disappeared. So that's what Jesus is saying there. And then he transitions right into Verse 20, where he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he's talking about here, how does that happen? How do we finally get to the point where heaven and earth are merged in our hearts, in, in our psyches, in our understanding in such a way that we are now living the law 
It has become the law of liberty, the way James puts it. He's saying that the law is fulfilled. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. The law is fulfilled when you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, that would have blown the minds of the people because nobody can exceed that that complete dedication and focus on the law and keeping every jot and tittle of the code. But Jesus is saying that what you're actually doing is graduating from that macro understanding of law as a code that must be obeyed and followed to a micro experience of mercy and compassion and love. To exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees is to graduate from merely obedience, from merely following the law into living it in every relationship, every person that you meet in such a way that love is front and center. Now, I don't know how abstract or, theolog- or theoretical, even theological this may seem to you. You know, I was thinking, how, how relevant is all of this? Here we're reading these things in kind of an old-timey language, and it, does it really pertain? Does it really help us in our daily lives and in everything that we are doing? from moment to moment. I want to tell you a story and see if this kind of helps maybe bring all this together. Some of you know that I've been working also for Chalk Children's Hospital, which is a pediatric hospital. Main location is uh, in Orange. But Chalk also um, leases the fifth floor of Mission Hospital right here in Mission Viejo. And that's the pediatric floor, pediatric wing. And... um, And so I've been there as a staff counselor, counseling the staff people. A case came through just a few weeks ago where a nine-month-old baby boy was um, 911 emergency ambulanced into the ER at Mission. He had drowned in his bathtub. And so the, the EMTs, of course, did what they could on the ride over, and then they brought him into the uh, the ER, ED, and worked on him there for 40 minutes, and they finally got a sinus rhythm back. They finally got spontaneous circulation back. And so from there then, as soon as he was at least stabilized in terms of that, then they sent him up to the fifth floor to the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Chalk, um, to continue to stabilize and work on him and see. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you watch enough TV and movies and you watch someone with, you know, undergoing CPR, as soon as they cough and the water comes out and they turn their head, then it's like, oh, they're saved, you know? It's like for us, CPR is 100% effective. Did you know that CPR is effective if it starts in the field maybe 10% to 24% of the time? If it starts in the hospital where the professional's there, that goes up to maybe 40%. But most often, even if you bring someone back through CPR, they're not going to survive. And if they do, there could be permanent brain damage and other things that are, that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives. It's not the slam dunk that we thought it was. So even though this boy was brought back and his, his circulation was restored, they knew when they got him, that this is going to be a really tough road. Now, I don't know exactly. I'm not clear on when it actually, they, they arrived. But the police arrived. Either it was in the, in the emergency department or at when he was transferred up to the PICU. But here's the kicker. His mother put him in the bath and then left him there to go out and do drugs. Now, it's not clear to me whether she was doing that in her home or actually left the house 
But when she got back, of course, she was underwater. So the police show up, and they consider now the hospital floor, the room, a crime scene. And they showed up in force. There were three sheriff deputies, you know, in the dark green, virtual SWAT uniforms with the bulletproof vests and the big belt and all of that. And they're standing in the room at the foot of the bed. And then there were detectives that were also there. It was this huge presence and show of force. And they arrest her. They cuff her behind her, hands behind her back. And they're ready to haul her off to the, to the station. And the med team goes ballistic. And they wait, wait, what are you doing? This is the baby's mother. The baby is still alive. And they had to fight and cajole and advocate for that mother to be able to allow her just to stay, at least until her baby died. And the police were reticent to do it, but they finally agreed. And so the mother's in the room. All these police are in the room. And then the father shows up with his family. And the mother had a restraining order against the father. So that's tricky, right? Because he can only be so many feet away, has to be so many feet away. So they are sequestering him off. And the, uh, the, the nurses were telling me that they could barely even move around the bed in the room because there were so many people in there. And they're trying to work on this child, and they're still trying to save the child. They're doing what they can, even though they know that the odds are against them. But there is this one image that sticks in my mind, because it's not that the medical staff, the nurses, didn't know what the woman did. They knew. In fact, one of the nurses said, you know, how stupid can you be? How can you even understand the negligence? But this is what addicts do. But at the same time, he said, in that moment, she was the child's mother. And she needed to be there. And he said it was obvious from everyone looking at her, she didn't intend this. She was, she was horrified that it had happened now that she was you know, sober enough to actually take it in. And she wanted to be there. And there is this image of her. Her hands were cuffed behind her back, so she backs up to the bed to try to be able to touch her baby, her dying baby, because that's the only way that she could accomplish it. And, of course, the nurses were all nervous because they've got all these cops watching them and thinking, hey, you know, I'm trying to put a tube in here, and what if I do it wrong? Are they going to haul me off next? So the amount of stress is just mounting and mounting and mounting. And, of course, the baby didn't make it. The baby died and they hauled her off. Now, I got to be uh, at the debrief. The debrief is where um, the, the people involved in the medical team have a chance to come together as a group, and we talk through what happened, how they felt about it. You know, Was there anything else that could have been done? But the debrief is, happens fairly soon after the critical event, and it is focused on the feelings and the, the well-being of everyone that was on the medical team. And the overriding emotion that I was getting from this, this group of medical professionals and one chaplain was outrage. Outrage and anger. That was the main thing. Even more than the grief that they felt for the loss of this life and the tragic situation all the way around, it was outrage and anger. And there was some at the mother, of course, as you would expect. But most of their outrage and anger was toward the law enforcement officers. Those were the ones that they really couldn't understand. 
you know, it, it was it was like looking at, at some kind of alien creature to them that they would act the way that they acted in a situation like that because all the training for medical staff is advocacy for the patient and for the family and to be able to do everything that we can to allow them, even if there's a bad outcome, to be able to continue on afterwards. And so their outrage was all focused there at those law enforcement officers. Their outrage toward the mother was tempered by their need for advocacy for her, to be able to bring her at least some kind of connection. But when you think about it, the law enforcement officers were looking at the medical staff as obstructing their crime scene, right? And the medical staff was looking at the law enforcement officers as obstructing their medical care, their ability to just do what they're trained to do for the people that were involved. So it's a classic clash of cultures, a classic clash of systems. Law enforcement on one side and medical care and ethics on the other side. But more broadly, it's a clash between law and justice and mercy and compassion, right? That's the axis from which each group was coming as they had this confrontation in the beginning, uh, in the middle. The, the, the Leos, the law enforcement officers, saw the mother simply as an offender and they saw the hospital room as a crime scene, and they treated it exactly that way. The medical team saw the offender as a mother and saw the hospital room as the place of caregiving. So they were coming from different worlds, different planets, and neither was wrong, right? But neither was fully right either. We talk about this over and over. It's not either or. It's always both and. When it comes to life, it's both and. As soon as we flop down to one side or another in a dualistic way, we've lost half of what life is all about. Whatever the situation, whatever the issue is, it's going to be both and. We want to occupy that middle space. So it's both and in the correct context. And now we see that there's a, com a conflict here between macro and micro as well. The law is a macro instrument. It is focused on the group. It only works when it's focused on the group. And the law cannot be compassionate. The law has to follow the law. The law has to do what the law does. Only individuals can be compassionate, not the law, not an institution like the law. Now, an individual within that system can be compassionate, a judge can be compassionate, and a judge can make decisions within the limits of the law to do what he or she thinks was right in a given situation. And a police officer can do exactly the same thing. Apparently these police officers didn't see it that way, but the individual has the room to move within the limits of the law and be able to deliver as much mercy and compassion within the macro system as possible. Now, healthcare is also a macro instrument at the policy level, at the science level, but at the bedside, it's always micro. Has to be. Now, the, the medical professional has to make a choice. Are they going to approach that person bedside in a macro or micro way? And you all know the difference. If you've ever been with a medical professional who was seemingly uncaring 
completely uncompassionate, completely by the book and bureaucratic and checked out. Yeah, we know the difference. So there is a choice to be made. But at the bedside, healthcare is micro. And that's why I was so proud of this medical team, you know, my group here, because they were able to see through the difficulties here, the crime here, and still try to deliver the best patient care that they could under completely difficult situations. And they were stressed over it, and they were impacted, as you can imagine. And we talked through that. And then a few weeks later, there was, there was what they call an M&M, uh, mortality and morbidity, where now we dive into the same case, but now more from a medical side. What actually happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? How can we learn from this, and how can we change going forward? That one is less about the emotions, since those have had time to kind of settle down, and more about the science of it, so that we can get this right and be in the best situation going forward. So now having told you that story, you may still be thinking, how in the world does that apply to me? When am I ever going to be in a situation like that, right? It just doesn't apply. And yeah, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, this is the kind of things that Hallmark movies are made of, right? But the medical team was experiencing what some have called a limit situation. A limit situation is a situation in which you reach the limit of your ability to control what's going on. You can no longer control. You also are reaching the limit of your ability to make meaning or sense out of what is happening. Both are happening at the same time. You're literally at the precipice of everything that you know that makes life make sense. And you're looking into the abyss because nothing from here on makes any sense. This is exactly what the medical team was experiencing. They were looking at these law enforcement officers and they didn't understand them. It didn't make any sense. They couldn't make meaning out of it. And they had no ability to control the situation except the one negotiation that they did get so that the mother could at least stay for a while. And the outrage and the frustration and the stress were all signs of moral distress that they were going through. Now, you may have heard of moral distress, but what is it really? Well, moral distress is the conflict between the way things are and the way you think they should be. Between the way things are and the way you think they should be with a sense of powerlessness to bring the two together. You can't do that. Something is constraining you. There is some conflict. Something is going on, and you can't get to the way things should be. Is that starting to sound familiar in your own life? I hope so. How much of all of this, limit situations and moral distress, can be understood as a, a conflict, a clash between micro and macro contexts, between the worldviews that come from micro and macro? Because I'm here to tell you almost all of these limit situations, almost all of the moral distress that we feel as we're just running up against whatever we run up against in life, however small or however large, are a clash of the expectations that we have coming from one side or the other, from a macro perspective or from a micro perspective, from a justice perspective or from a compassion perspective. Whatever we're bringing into that is hitting up against the wall of reality. And it's difficult for us to deal with that. But once we understand what's going on, 
once we see what's at play in a given situation, then we have a better chance of accepting the limit that's being applied to us. Now we're in serenity prayer territory, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, but also the courage to accept to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Now we're getting to that place. But if we don't know what's going on, that's really hard to do. We just know we feel crazed, but we don't really know why or what's going on. But once we understand, once we can accept, this is a limit that I cannot change. I'm not going to get these cops out of here, right? Then we can stop resisting, stop fighting the actual situation itself, and we can start to move again. And once we can move again, now we can work within the new playing field that has been defined for us, within the structures and the constraints that have been uh, applied, in such a way that we can start to work for the greatest good and the least harm, which is what this medical team was able to do. But you have to first accept the limitation. Stop fighting it. Stop saying it shouldn't be this way. And just realize this is the way it is for now. Maybe not tomorrow if I have anything to say about it. But right now, this is how it is. So how can I work the greatest good and the least harm? Now, most of you are here probably because your old church, right? Your old theology, the doctrine that you came, with, came up with created a limit for you, created a sense of moral distress for you. And maybe the rest of you just really like the donuts. I don't know. But if you're like me, you're here because you felt that. Now, here's the interesting thing about moral distress. Your body understands you're in distress long before your mind can figure it out. Your body is going to feel that stress. Your emotions are going to kick in. Somatically, you're going to feel it. And then cognitively, later on, you're going to start to go through a process of deconstruction where all your beliefs are being tested and so on and so forth. But immediately, you're going to feel the emotion and you're going to feel the stress in your body before we even know what's going on. That's why it's so important to pay attention to your emotions, pay attention to your body, pay attention to what's going on. Those are windows down into the unconscious. They're an early warning system. It's a light on your dashboard telling you there's something wrong here. You've got to pay attention. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in the ditch. So here's the thing. Jesus is trying to teach us how to manage the moral distress in our lives. He's trying to teach us and show us how do we balance macro and micro. Because as long as we're drawing breath here, we're going to be between heaven and earth, between micro and macro. There's no other way around this. Between law and justice, between mercy and compassion and law and justice. And this is what he's trying to show us. This is what's happening in Matthew 5, if you really break it down. Now, he's launching into what are called the six antitheses, the, 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 the six you know, big conflicts. And he's trying to help us to balance between the code of the law, just following the code, and fulfilling the intent of the law, fusing that in the heart of each person who is living in kingdom. And he's got a formula with which he does that. Take a look at Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told, or maybe another translation would be, you've heard of old, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, 
shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. All right, what in the world is he talking about here? That formula, though, you have heard it was said of old, and I say this to you, I tell you that, is what he's going to do six times in a row. And this was an ancient rabbinic teaching technique to to contrast two different um, thoughts or notions or concepts in parallel construction. And this way you could really see what's going on. So you've heard it was said of old. Now he's going to give the macro tradition that everybody is familiar with. But I'm going to say to you, and now he's going to introduce the micro fulfillment of that tradition. And if you have your inserts with you, take a look. And if you can grab one, it'll be helpful because I don't have them for the monitors. I got a chart there. Just to take a look at what's happening here between these two poles of what he's trying to do here in this section. So on one side, you've got the, on the left-hand side, you've got the macro. On the right-hand side, you've got the right, micro. You've heard of old, and he states a macro tradition. And we're going to look, first of all, when he does this, what's the context? So you've heard of old macro. I say to you micro. The context for the macro is going to be the community, the group, right? But the context in the micro is going to be the individual person. What is going to be the emphasis between the two? The emphasis for the macro is the law, of course. But the emphasis for the micro is ethics. And ethics are always situational. Ethics don't apply until you have a situation to which they apply. Because they're going to move around. They're not going to be static like the law is. They're going to move around depending on how they're being applied and to whom they're being applied. What's the goal? For macro, it's justice. For micro, it's mercy. What are the means that we use to get to those goals? In the macro, it's going to be obedience, following the law. But in the micro, it's going to be love, mercy, and compassion. And what is the result? In the macro, it's simply conformance. It's just got to look like everybody else, toe the line. But in the micro, it's transformance, changing completely from inside out. So he's going to dive into this first antithesis right now. And he's going to talk about, he did dive into it, we just read it. He's talking about murder. And we have to distinguish murder from killing because murder is the word that's used here. It's ratzak in, in Hebrew, as opposed to harag, in, which means to kill. So in other words, if the death that occurs is accidental, and the, the uh, example they use in the Old Testament is if your axe head flies off your axe and kills your neighbor, that's not ratzak, that's not murder. It wasn't intentional. But in an honor-shame society, as this ancient culture was, even an accidental death kicked in the blood feud, kicked in the blood vengeance. And so if you killed one of ours, then we're going to come and kill one of yours. You know, that, that whole thing. And back and forth and back and forth until everybody's pretty much dead. Now, this is why the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth was introduced, the Code of Hammurabi, because at least it limited the amount of, of craziness that could take place. If my axe head didn't kill you but took out your eye, well then, theoretically, I could take out your eye. Now that's not what ever happened. What they would do would be to put you on the block with one, uh, as if when you had two eyes, and calculate your value as a slave. And then with one eye, they'd recalculate your value as a slave. The difference between the two is the fine that needed to be paid from the one who knocked out the eye to the other. So that's the way they really handled it. But you can see that's a far cry better than the blood feud, which is going back and forth. 
Now, the problem with murder is it couldn't be commuted to any kind of fine. Murder only resulted in death. But what, how was a person supposed to get a fair trial if they killed someone even accidentally and now and the whole family is after you? They established six cities of refuge where people could flee. If you could get to the city of refuge before they killed you, then you were safe. They couldn't touch you once you're in the city. And then they would hold an actual trial there. And on the, the, uh, the, the testimony of two to three witnesses, you would either be acquitted or you'd be convicted. And if you were convicted, then you would be stoned to death. And the witnesses throw the first stones, and then the community would follow afterwards. This was a system that they had. And it worked. It was better than what was there before, even if it seems kind of crazy to this. And everybody knew this. Everybody that Jesus is speaking to understands this system. What Jesus is doing is trying to take them out of this legal macro mindset, out of just this is the way it works, this is the way it always works, there is no other solution, and bring them into a micro and relational and personal context. He's shifting the context. Because remember, the law is only fulfilled in the micro in love, in connection. And once we're there in that connection, the law can disappear. When we're in heart, right, when we're in love, we will not and cannot stand behind the fig leaf of just an unbroken legal code. It doesn't stand. It doesn't work. Jesus is trying to take us much deeper than that. Now, at the same time, Jesus is not literally equating murder and anger. They're not the same thing, even though he seems to be saying that. He's using hyperbole here. We have to understand this is the way Jesus teaches. He's a poet, right? So he's going to use metaphor and hyperbole and every figure of speech under the sun to try to get his point. What he's saying is that anger breaks up relationship compromises a relationship long before it escalates into any kind of physical violence. If you have anger in your heart toward a person, you're already stepped out of kingdom. You're already stepped out of relationship. You are already living your own personal hell, if you want to look at it that way. And so he defines these three levels of escalation and says, this is what you need to watch out for. The first one is, if you just have anger toward a person. Now, the King James Bible in English translations is the only one that adds without a cause. If you're angry with your brother without a cause, now that sort of changes the parameters here somewhat. But all the other Bibles have opted to leave that phrase out because it only appeared in a few ancient manuscripts and not the most reliable ones as they are seen today since the 20th century. But interestingly enough, the Peshitta, the, the full uh, Aramaic Bible that we have extant today has that clause in. So it's up to you whether you want to put it in or not. But Jesus is basically saying, if you're carrying around anger in your heart with a cause, without a cause, then you've already compromised the relationship. The person has already been separated from each other and everyone else, separated from kingdom. And separation is sin. So that person is literally living in sin because they're living in separation. And then he brings in the metaphor. So once you already have anger in your heart, you're already guilty before the court. And the word he uses there means the lower court. It was a local tribunal of just seven judges or seven elders that would convene when they needed to convene. 
Supreme. And whatever decision they came up with could be appealed to the Supreme Court, which was a Sanhedrin. That was a body of 70 elders. Right? So Jesus says, if you have the anger in your heart, you're already guilty before this lower court. But then if you take the next step and you say racha, which literally means to spit upon, but also can mean empty, worthless, or you imbecile. <laughs> Words that don't seem that bad to us today, but to them, especially in that honor-shame society, were huge insults. And this now is a spoken insult. It's out in the, uh, in the atmosphere. It can't be unheard. It can't be taken back. You know? And he says, now you're guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. That's the 70. And there is no appeal. Whatever they come up with is binding and final, just like with our Supreme Court. And then if you take it to the third level and you say, Leila, which means you fool or you coward, which maybe seems kind of benign to us. That was an even greater insult, a great enough insult that it demanded retaliation. And so now you have said something that is going to end in physical violence. The person has to retaliate. Now you are guilty of the fiery hell. The word there is Gehenna. And as we pointed out so many times before, Gehenna doesn't mean hell the way we think of hell. Gehenna is more like Catholic purgatory. You're there for a period not to exceed 12 months, a symbolic complete cycle of purification. So the fires of hell were meant to purify. The fires of Gehenna were meant to purify and not necessarily punish, although they're doing this both at the same time. But you're in need of that now. You have gone so far in losing your way that you're going to need to spend time in purification to come back again. And so he's talking about an escalation here from thoughts to words to violent action. And he's saying, nip it in the bud before it gets to the next level. Stop it here. Don't let it go to that extent. But as soon as the unity is broken, as soon as you've taken that first step to break your connection with your brother, you're out of kingdom. The law remains unfulfilled. He's trying to get that point home. It's not about the fig leaf of the code of the law. It's about what's happening in your heart. And then he uses two further little stories to try to drive the point home. And verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Perfect common sense, right? We understand that. But how many times do we just fulfill the code of the law and say, hey, I did my part? It doesn't get us very far in terms of relationship. And he's, Jesus is literally saying, these rituals that you perform, these purity codes and rituals, they mean absolutely nothing if your heart is not right. I'm trying to get this through their heads. At verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Once again, it's not just about who wins at court. It's about can you repair the relationship on your own before you even get there? How much could be accomplished of saving relationships if we just did that much? This is where Jesus is trying to take us, trying to get us to understand the micro law 
only, the macro law is only fulfilled in a connected micro relationship with respect, with love, and then the law can disappear. Now I guarantee you that Jesus' first followers felt their limit situation, felt the moral distress of their milieu, of just their lives. They were living under a dual system. They were living under a, a merciless Judaic code and law, and also a merciless Roman code and civil law. And both of them were converging on the people and making their lives practically unlivable. They were feeling the stress in their bodies. You know, they were feeling the stress in their finances. How could they pay the taxes? How could they do what they needed to do? And the frustration and the outrage they were feeling, which was boiling over as political unrest, was all happening at this time. And the insane burden of these Jewish and Roman systems on them. Now, they probably didn't recognize that they were in moral distress. They just knew life was terrible and it was so hard and it shouldn't be this way. This is the way it is, but this is the way it really should be. And they weren't really empowered to begin to accept the limit situation as it was. And this is what Jesus is showing them, trying to get them to see. If you can't change the law, if you can't change the Roman occupation, how in the world are we going to live richly and well and live in abundance the way Jesus said that he came to show us how to live abundantly? Remember when he is asked whether he should pay, the, the Jews should pay taxes to Rome? Remember? This is a classic example. They think they've trapped him now because if he says one thing, he's in trouble with Rome, and he says the other thing, he's in trouble with the people because the people hated to pay their taxes, just like we all do. But Jesus said, just show me a coin. Show me a denarius, the, the coin that was used to pay the taxes. He says, whose inscription, whose likeness is on it? Well, Caesar's. Okay, well then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God. Do you see what he's doing there? They came to him with a macro proposition, thinking they had him trapped. And he immediately shifts the context back to micro. Okay, in the macro, you're going to have to give back what this guy's stuff is. There's, there's really no way around that unless you want to cease living, even the life that you have here in this place. But at the same time, can you focus here on the micro, on your relationship with God? Can you make your interior life rich and fulfilling? Can you make your relationships and your family rich and fulfilling so that even as you're living under this unjust system, you feel like there's still meaning and purpose in life and you know who you are. This is what Jesus is trying to do. The same shift from macro to micro, finding a way to balance the two. And what he's telling us is we can choose our macro life. We can choose connection. We can choose presence. We can choose love and respect. We can choose to let a guilty, negligent mother touch her dead child even when she, we know that she's going to jail and prison for this and should go to jail and prison for this. But in the moment, we can choose how we function and how we relate and how much humanity we retain. And Jesus is saying, no one can take that from you. That is your choice. 
And so even as we work to change the macro inequities that are around us and doing whatever we do, we can also at the same time choose to love the micro moment right here and right now. We can do both at the same time. We can be a happy warrior. We can do this, Jesus is telling us. We have to accept our limit situations, but once we do, then we can move to create the greatest good within that situation and the least harm within that situation. And in the doing of that, we don't have to experience the moral distress in our emotions and in our body the way that we do when we're still fighting and resisting the limit situation itself because we will still have meaning and purpose in our doing, in our living, even within the limitations. We can choose, Jesus is telling us, never to let macro law define us or deaden our sense of compassion and mercy and love for each other. It's our choice and it can't be taken from us. Jesus is giving us back our power to choose who we will be. That power that was taken from us by everything that we've experienced in life, the trauma starting way back to childhood, the negligence, the abuse, whatever it might have been, the victimization, the teaching and preaching that was so off point that also further limited us, limited our understanding, limited our worldview, the peer pressure that did all the same thing, all of that stuff that was layered on over the child that we were, Jesus is working to strip away so that we can have the power to choose again who we really are. And if we choose as Jesus does, if we choose as Father does, then we can be those happy warriors. Then we can deal with the limitations that life will inevitably put on us over and over again without the sense of moral distress that is so debilitating. Because Jesus is saying, we can live in kingdom because kingdom is within through whatever life and the world may present to us if we so choose. Let's pray. Father, we love that you've given us the choice and we hate that you've given us the choice because now the responsibility lies with us. You've already chosen. You've never withheld anything and you've given us everything that there is. Everything we need is here, now, always has been for us to make our choices. But so many of our choices are clouded over by some of the trauma and and everything that we've experienced in life. So help us to heal. Help us to heal that enough that we can re-choose who we really are so we can choose to be like you, to love like you, to balance like you. But never let us forget that even if we are victims, even if we are being abused or oppressed, we still have a choice. And the choice may only be to live our interior life the way that we can't live our exterior life, but that's enough. That's enough. Help us to do exactly that, Lord. And as things get more difficult in our country, in our world, and in life in general, help us to remember we have the power to choose you and your ways 
in everything we do and experience your presence because we are now connected to it. So thank you for that, Father. And thank you for this reminder and this teaching. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.